Well, it's been great to be with you. I trust I'll see you tomorrow, but I don't know, maybe some of you are out of town or I don't know, but I assume everybody will be there tomorrow. So I look forward to being with you tomorrow. But I just wanted to say at the outset of this last time together, this has been a real joy for me and it's been great to uh, connect with so many of you, even if, even if just briefly, um, I feel like I can, um, I have a, a real sense of who you are as a people from just interacting uh, with you briefly. And you are an encouraging people, um, uh, people eager, my observation, eager to please the Lord and lean into what the Lord has uh, for you, uh, a friendly, welcoming, hospitable people. It's just been great to be with you. So thanks for your encouragement and your welcome of me in this time together. And um, we got one more and then we'll, we'll connect uh, tomorrow morning as well. But it's really been a, a joy to be with you. So thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, so just as a review, this will be the last session and uh, we won't say much about consummation. We will talk about redemption here. So in your outline, did everybody get an outline? I guess they're in the back of the room if you didn't get one. Um, but just to review God's story, we've talked about creation, which is ought the way things ought to be. We've talked about fall, the fall, the way uh, it is, the way life is. And now we're going to talk about redemption, which is the way life can be as we look forward to the consummation, which we just sang about. That's beautiful. Uh, the way life will be uh, in the new heavens and the new earth with our Lord. So as we get into redemption, there's, there's a couple things I want to talk about. The first one is the promise. So the Bible starts uh, right at the fall. We read this last night, right at the fall with a promise of redemption. And that's Genesis 3.17, the famous statement about your offspring will, uh, you know, bruise his head and, and the enemy, he will bruise his heel. So it's a statement of uh, a crushing blow and defeat for the serpent uh, that was the curse given to him. So there's a promise of redemption. And I mentioned also yesterday that in Genesis 12, we get a promise for how God will actually execute that redemption. Because uh, Genesis 3.17 is a promise. It's a certainty, but it's sort of vague. There's no real detail of fleshing that out. How will God defeat the serpent? So in our story, we had everything created perfect. It fell and everything was tainted by sin. The first marriage, their companionship, uh, their one flesh relationship was broken. And so now they knew hiding and blaming and they knew these curses of uh, rivalry in the relationship and the difficulty of bringing forth children and the difficulty of work and how all of our callings uh, now find resistance in a fallen world. So we saw that, we saw the promise of redemption, but then there is this long plan of how God will bring that out. And he promises to Abraham, Abram, who becomes Abraham, he promises to give him a nation, to make him a nation, to make him a people, to give him a land, and that from him all the nations will be blessed. So that's God's promise to create Israel. And he gives Israel his law so that they will know how to live for his glories, also so that they will live as a light to the nations that surround them to represent what is it like to be in relationship with Yahweh, uh, God, Israel's God, our God. Uh, he also gives them directives on how to worship him. <clears throat> so he gives sort of a, um, a, we might call a ceremonial uh, law that, that shows, uh, introduces a sacrificial system and shows how his people are to worship him. Gives them a land, a law, uh, a, a means of worship, a tabernacle later, a temple. Uh, and then he sends prophets along the way to correct them when they stray from his law and stray from being a faithful witness to the nations. Uh, but the prophets also continue to hammer that Genesis 3.17, that there's coming one who will bring salvation. The Messiah is coming. You see that throughout the Old Testament. And then the last prophet who is known as the forerunner of Jesus, is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist comes and sort of brings the, the last promise, but then also the declaration that now God is fulfilling his promise to redeem. So let her be there. I just picked, we could have looked at all kinds of scriptures, right, to talk about redemption, but I just picked John 1.19 because that, is, uh, that just is so continuous with the one story of the Bible coming from the old covenant to the new. Uh, in Jesus, God himself <clears throat> comes to dwell with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. 
The Apostle John tells us that Jesus tabernacles among his people as the incarnate God. So he is God's very presence, God in person with us. And at the beginning of John's gospel, John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the serpent crusher, the one who was anticipated when he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you just see the continuation of the one story. So it was the lambs that were sacrificed in the Old Testament uh, for atonement for our sins. And Jesus is the Lamb of God who will atone for our sins. His death for the sins of his people and his resurrection, well, they are the terminal blow to sin, death, Uh, and the serpent, just as God promised. It is through that work of Jesus. And then letter C, I want to talk about this a little bit, because then after Jesus ascends, it goes back to his father. He doesn't leave the newly uh, redeemed people of God, the people who have tasted uh, the redemption of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sin. They've been brought into the new creation. He doesn't just leave them, but he sends his spirit, which is a big promise in the gospel of John. And we see the spirit coming in Acts 2. And Acts 2 is really the dawning, sort of the beginning of the, what I'm calling here the era of can. Because once the Spirit comes and empowers and indwells his people, making us new people, then we have the ability by God's power to to have our hearts changed, our desires changed, and a fresh indwelling power to say no to sin and yes to God. To, to begin to recapture some of what was lost in Eden. As God, uh, the pouring out of the Spirit is sort of the, uh, it, it's sort of the beginning of the renewal of all things. All things will be renewed in the consummation. But, but there's a big leap forward in the story where the beginning of the renewal of all things becomes by renewing his people with the Spirit, ushering us into the age of the Spirit. When Jesus pours out the Spirit, it really changes everything. And my hunch is, that many of us don't really grasp what a, what a drastic change it really is and can be to have God himself living inside our hearts, dwelling in us as a people, individually and as a corporate people, uh, changing our hearts, producing fruit in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit. And so that's the age that we live in. We're being conformed to the image of God by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I love this word can because as the redeemed people of God, we can sort of now in a new way ask and even dream, what can our marriage be? What can our marriage be? A lot of the questions have been, look, let's look at one another. How are we doing? Where do we need to grow? This isn't one of the discussion questions, but it should be. Uh, the question, what can? Let's, let's, by God's spirit, dream a bit about what what could occur in our companionship? What, how could it look different than it does today? Where, how might we experience this one flesh relationship in a new way, empowered by the Spirit? So the age of the Spirit, the era of can, it doesn't change the marriage. It's still a covenant relationship, a covenant of companionship. We still enjoy the one flesh relationship. But we have a new power And let's don't underestimate that. We do believe in the power of the Spirit, right? So let's don't underestimate his power to transform and conform. We'll never be what we will be in the new heaven and new earth, but we can be much different than we are today. So there's something very hopeful about um, the new life that we experience. We are born anew by the Spirit. we're, We're someone that we weren't before. And uh, we're declared righteous and we're being conformed to his image. So we're being made increasingly righteous in our, in our experience by the Holy Spirit as we repent and believe on a, on a daily basis and trust the Lord. Um, so anyway, I want to talk a little bit in uh, Romans 3, Romans uh, numeral, Roman numeral 3 rather, about the redeemed marriage. And I'm going to look at Ephesians 5 and... Um, That is sort of, you know, we could look anywhere about redemption and marriage, but this would obviously be the most common place in the New Testament is would be Ephesians 5 to address marriage. It's where Paul, uh, he addresses it in uh, Colossians as well briefly, and there are other places. Corinthians addresses marriage and uh, usually just about how jacked up their whole lives were (laughs) and their view of marriage, which is usually very corrective, but we learn from that. Uh, And so, but this is kind of the key chapter um, that we look at in marriage. 
And I, I hope to present this in a way, I, if the Lord convicts you, that's wonderful. Uh, may he convict us. But I also hope that it will be hopeful for you as well. Some people say, oh, we're going to Ephesians 5. Put on a seatbelt because this is, okay, this is where, <laughs> this is where it's coming to be really difficult. But I, I want to present this under the, era, uh, under the idea that we live in the era of can, that we live as redeemed people who can and are being changed uh, to be, to live out uh, who God has called us to be. And so I want to look at a new purpose, I'm sorry, a new power, a new purpose, and a new pattern, or maybe a better call that a new perspective. That, that's a funny term in theology. People talk about the new perspective of Paul, which uh, I don't appreciate that. But, but a new perspective of our marriage, that is something very, very helpful. So I want to look at that a little bit. So first of all, the new power. Ephesians 5, um, verses, I'm going to look at verse 18 before we get to marriage, the section on marriage. And this is what Paul writes. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I don't know if you've, that's a familiar passage, I trust, to most of us in the room, if not all of us, but I, I don't know that we've given proper attention when we begin to talk about this passage, about the role of the Spirit. This is the most popular passage, as I said, in the New Testament on marriage. And what usually happens is we skip down to verse 22 and start defining everything by roles. What's the role of the wife? What's the role of the husband following that? And then we may get a few comments about Christ and the church as well. But often it's taught and understood as just a, as oftentimes a list of to-dos, and there are some things to do, no doubt. But we kind of take it out of its context. The immediate context of this passage is Paul saying, you're to be filled with the Spirit, and then he describes being filled with the Spirit in three ways. He says, this is what it looks like. These are the kinds of things that the Spirit-filled life looks like. Verse 19, addressing one another's psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody uh, to the Lord. So if you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to sing to the Lord, he says. Secondly, give thanks always for everything. So if you're filled with the Spirit, what's that going to look like? You're going to be a grateful person. The Spirit will provoke praise in us. And thirdly, these are all uh, clauses, uh, each of these phrases, uh, rather, is connected to being filled with the Spirit. So it is addressing one another, singing songs, it is giving thanks, and 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there is a, a submission that takes place in the body of Christ, the people of God submitted to one another, and then he goes into, wives submit to your own husband. So he makes an application of submission in the, the marriage relationship, then he'll do that in the parent-child relationship, and then the servant and, uh, and uh, master relationship as well. That's where he goes in the chapter. But the context is you need to be filled with the Spirit to live out what God has called you to live to, uh, live, live out, that we need to be filled with the Spirit. It, it, this speaks of our need. I put down here number two. Our responsibilities in marriage, as we read here, they're not merely difficult. They are impossible. And our hope for a flourishing marriage is found in the gospel and in the power of the Spirit. We need the Spirit to illuminate God's Word, to convict us of sin, and to create God-glorifying desires within us. The can of redemption is never to be imagined apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. So just this idea that before we even talk about submission, and of course as it goes on, of course it would apply to sacrificial love as well. Anything, any obedience to God requires the power of the Spirit. I just think we miss that. When we think about being filled with the Spirit, we may think about the gifts of the Spirit. That's not incorrect. When we think about this passage even, we may think about being filled with the Spirit, singing songs, and maybe we even think about giving thanks, but I think we rarely think about submitting to one another in the, in the body of Christ, that there's a some mutual submission of the members of the body of Christ that happen, and then here's an application of that in marriage. Wives, submit to your husband. I don't, I don't know that we, uh, I think we sort of wrench this, this marriage, husband and wife thing, out of 
the context of being filled with the Spirit. And of course, being filled with the Spirit sort of points back to verse 15 where it says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So live wisely in the world. You're gonna have to be filled with the Spirit to do that. And if you're filled with the Spirit, you're gonna be singing to the Lord, you're gonna be thankful, you're gonna be joyfully submitting to one another. Now let's talk about how that works out in a marriage. Wives and husbands, that's how it flows. So there is a new power that, that uh, Adam and Eve did not have in Genesis 4. So the falls in Genesis 3. In Genesis 4, they don't have what you have and what I have. That happens after the death and resurrection of Jesus and the pouring out of the Spirit who, who now uh, gives new life to all of us as believers. Secondly, I think there's a new purpose here. I'm not saying the marriage is different under redemption and in Christ. You're still a companion. You're still one flesh. However, there is a new glorious purpose that he tells us of here that Adam and Eve and the saints of the Old Testament could only imagine. And we see this in verses 31 through 33. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Okay, we've read that. Every session we've read that. Genesis uh, 2, what was that, 24. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So here in this section, he's kind of getting, he's saying, okay, think back to the purpose of marriage, which you were taught in Genesis 2, that it is leave your father and mother, cleave, bond in this, you know, permanent sort of one flesh relationship. But now our eyes are open to a new reality beyond that bond. So when we're converted, we, we get a new purpose in all of life. We leave the feudal ways and we now have a new purpose and we now have a new purpose in marriage because Christian marriage takes on a new meaning when we discover that the covenant of companionship points to a reality beyond itself. There may have been a, a, a hazy, foggy idea of that in the Old Testament, but it, it's clarified in the new covenant uh, right here, that it points to a reality beyond itself. In verse 33, it says that the, uh, or verse 32, it says that it, the mystery is profound. I'm saying, excuse me, I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. I'm saying that the mystery of marriage refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one love his wife and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the mystery of marriage points to Christ in the church. Paul says the meaning is profound because from the beginning, marriage of husband and wife reflected the future relationship between Christ and the church. I have a quote in here from you, for you from Ray Ortland that I think is helpful. He says, every time a bride and groom stand there and take their vows, they're reenacting re the biblical love story, whether they realize it or not. The Son of God stepping down out of eternity, entering time, taking on flesh, pursuing and winning his bride as his very heart and body with his inmost sincerest love so that he can fit her to be with him forever above. That dramatic super reality is the breathtaking reason why human beings exist. It is truly profound. And Christian married couples have the privilege of making the mystery of the gospel visible in the world today by living out the dynamic interplay of an Ephesians 5 quality marriage. We should not think, listen to this, we should not think that Christ and the church are the metaphor in this passage, but the reverse. Christ and the church are the reality of realities and our Christian marriages are the metaphors. So what we, we can kind of say, yeah, our, our marriage is the real thing and it points to Christ and the church. Paul says just the opposite. The real thing is Jesus and the church, which will be joined together uh, at the consummation. And the metaphor, the analogy, however you want to say it, the representation, the signpost to that reality is your marriage. So now marriage has this profound, you know, uh, incomprehensible, purpose 
So what's the purpose of our marriage? We started at the beginning and said, well, it's very clearly a covenant of companionship to answer Adam's condition of not being alone. It's a one flesh relationship that has a complementarity to it, that she is fit for him so that we fit together in this one flesh relationship and all of that to glorify the Lord. But now we could say even more and that it, that it is a metaphor or it is a picture or an analogy of the reality of realities, which is Christ and the church. So that gives a very sober reality to the importance of our marriage. You know, at the beginning, we started with these bulleted points of the reasons for marriage that people have had throughout history. Um, This is the deepest of them all. It's not just for my happiness, though God does aim to bring a fruitfulness and a joy to us through marriage. It's not just for my personal fulfillment, um, but it is to Uh, to actually be a reflection of the greatest reality in all of the universe. And so that just elevates uh, what it means for me to live as a man. I happen to be married, so as a married man in this world, what it means for me to, to represent Jesus, to glorify Jesus, it puts this deep uh, sort of uh, profound nature on what can feel like sometimes just the, if this is why we have to have the whys, because if it's just, just here's a com- communication technique, those can be helpful. Uh, you know, here's a reconciliation, te- here's how to get through an argument, that can be helpful. Here's the mechanics of sex, that can be helpful. Uh, here's how to sync your schedules and your budgets as a married couple, all helpful. I'm not opposed to any of that stuff. Uh, however, if we just live at the surface, we'll do all those things for the wrong reasons. If we don't get to the foundation that this is all representing Christ and the church, then it just says all those things take on a deeper meaning and a deeper importance to, because they're connected to me living out this love and respect relationship that he speaks of here. A couple other things about once we are redeemed. Once we are redeemed, I said last night that when sin enters, there has to be some forgiveness uh, you know expressed between the couple but marriage is a primary context for our sanctification another book I recommend is uh, it's a really it's a, a bit kind of a big book but uh, a simple to understand book written by Tim Keller Tim and Kathy Keller called the meaning of marriage and in that he talks about marriage just being a, a, a key in our life of sanctification growing together in holiness What if, however, you began your marriage understanding its purpose as spiritual friendship, or we could say even companionship, for the journey to the new creation? What if you expected marriage to be about helping each other grow out of your sins and flaws into the new self God is creating? That, so we are declared righteous and made new, but we're being created, uh, we're being constantly transformed into what Christ wants us to be the beautiful bride of Christ. So our marriage is a representative of Christ and the church. And what is Christ doing with the church today? He is making her holy, Ephesians 5 says. He's nourishing and cherishing his people, as the text says. So the text teaches that Jesus is washing his bride and sanctifying us. And for us, in a marriage is a primary context for our sanctification, uh, our growth and holiness. Marriage is also a witness to the gospel because if marriage is, if it points to the reality of Christ in the church, then it reflects the gospel. And it's part of our gospel witness. Um, you know, we talked about marriage as spiritual warfare. It's an assault against the demonic powers uh, because it declares Christ's victory um, over sin and death and over the enemy. We talked about it being a powerful offense in sort of what's commonly called the culture wars, that one of the most powerful things we can do for the good and flourishing of our communities and a representation of Christ is to have a church filled with marriages that provide a better story than the world provides for marriage because it's connected to this passage, what we're talking about. But it's also a direct witness to the gospel. In your outline there, Ray Ortland said, for Paul, the practical demonstration of the gospel in our marriages comes down to love and respect. His love for her with her respect for him, that's verse 33, will demonstrate the eternal romance of Christ in the church, bringing the only lasting hope that exists into a broken world. I don't know that we think about that much, but it is, it's a key to our, to our witness. Uh, it's a key to sort of presenting Christ to the world. Uh, in a book by an author named Christopher Ash. 
Uh, he wrote a book on uh, dealing with marriage as well. He's British, and he shares this British illustration about how our marriages are a witness to the gospel. And what he does is he tells about this time, I don't know when, but sometime in uh, Britain when there was a battle between the foreign office and the treasury. So the foreign office uh, in Britain, that, that agency, was in charge of um, sort of the... Um, uh, the ambassadors to the various nations. So if you're an ambassador to a foreign country, you were uh, under the oversight of the foreign office. Uh, and in each nation, you know, there would be uh, where the ambassador, where the ambassadors are, um, where they, um, they would be connected to the foreign office. The treasury is, well, it's what you think. It's the people who are in charge of the money. So the foreign office was wanted to make a proposal about where uh, in the world their ambassadors <clears throat> could drive Rolls Royces for official business. And so if you're going to do official business, you're going to be representing the country, you drive in a Rolls Royce. Where would they do that? Well, the Treasury came back and said, oh, man, we, that's expensive. Only three. We'll give you three. So pick three key cities where we want our ambassadors, uh, you know, to, to represent us well. So maybe Washington would be one. Um, Moscow would be one, Paris would be one, those might be three. The Treasury says, why don't you go to, you, we can have them in these three. And, the, and the, the foreign office came back and said, no, we want them, in, like all, maybe not every country, but many, many countries, we want the Rolls Royce to be driven on official business by our am, am, ambassadors uh, in the foreign uh, nations. And he says, this is what Ash writes, I love their reasoning. Here was their reasoning of the foreign office. Most people in a foreign capital have never been to Britain. They say, but when they see this magnificent car gliding through their streets with the United Kingdom flag on the hood, they will say to themselves, I've never been to Britain. I don't know much about Britain. But if they make cars like that there, then Britain must be a wonderful place. In a similar way, I like to think, he writes, that men and women may say to themselves as they watch a Christian marriage, I've never seen God. Sometimes I wonder when I look at the world if God is good or if there even is, if there even is a God. But if he can make a man and woman love one another like this, if he can make this husband show costly faithfulness through sickness as well as health, if he can give him resources to love when, frankly, there's nothing in it for him, well, then he must be a good God. And if he can give this wife grace to submit so beautifully with such an attractive, gentle spirit under terrible trials, then again, he must be a good God. If you are married or preparing for marriage, pray that others may be able to say this of you in the years ahead, Ash writes. It's a beautiful illustration, isn't it? That just as someone seeing a Rolls Royce says, if that's what the United Kingdom's life like, I want, I'd love to visit there. I want to know more about that. And so in a marriage, if this kind of love, this kind of unity, I, I don't know about God, but they're Christians and they live this way. They have something that we don't have. I want to know about that God. So I think, that's a, I think that's a helpful, for me anyway, just a helpful illustration. So we have a new power. Uh, we have a new purpose that our, our marriage points to the reality of all realities, that our marriage is the context of our sanctification, that our marriage is a gospel witness. And then there's also in here a new pattern of relating. Now, some of this may be relating in the Old Covenant as well, but maybe a new perspective, if we could say that that way, a new perspective of how we relate together. Um, with a new power and a new purpose in marriage, the redeemed couple is given a new pattern of relating that reflects the gospel. Ephesians 5 gives wives and husbands a new perspective or orientation toward one another. In verse 33, he summarizes the husband's orientation towards the wife as love and the wife's orientation to the husband as respect. That was verse 33. Now, this doesn't deny that the wife is to love her husband 
or the husband is to respect his wife. Rather, it defines a general orientation about the spouses towards each other. Now, when we read, and we're going to look at this, uh, uh, wives and husbands and how they function together, oftentimes it gets broken down into sort of ground-level responsibilities in the relationship or responsibilities in the home, and we do have to come to those kinds of conclusions. Um, However, Paul doesn't give any of that kind of ground level stuff. He gives more, this is the way you are to be oriented towards one another. This is the way you fit together. This is the way the one flesh, this is sort of the fitting together. This is how, if you emphasize this orientation, you will represent Christ in the church. Uh, And I think it's important to note, as I just said here, that it's not some kind of exclusive things. Husbands, you're only to be about sacrificial love. So you're not off the hook on that, wives. You, you, you have to be sacrificially loving as well. Um, or wives, where it says, you know, respect your husband, verse 33. What well, does not mean the husband could just disrespect his wife? That wouldn't be loving. So there is this mutual respect and this mutual love that takes place. But I think what, what's going on here is to, to, to live out the reality of Christ and his church, there's a certain primary focus, primary orientation, not exclusive, but primary orientation one to another. And we get that in the wife and the husband. So number two, empowered by the spirit, wives are called to orient themselves to their husbands through a voluntary, joyful submission as to the Lord. That's what 22 says. So here it says submission, verse 33, it says respect. But verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So one clear thing we learn here right off the bat is the reality is the husband relates to, I'm sorry, the church relates to Jesus, its head, its savior, it says. The, the, the church relates to Jesus in a certain way. And wives, you have the privilege, he's saying here, to, to sort of walk that out with an orientation of your heart, um, fleshed out in practical ways that is a blessing to you and your husband and a witness to the world, uh, you are able to do that in a way to represent Christ and his church. There's a book by Chad and Emily Van Dixhorn. Chad Van Dixhorn is a professor at Westminster Seminary. And uh, even though we're a brand new denomination, TFC, he's a friend to us already. He's come and trained our pastors, not in marriage, but and what it means to be confessional. So he, he wrote this, he and his wife wrote this book, Gospel-Shaped Marriage. And I took a quote from it here for you. He says, submission is respect that leads to serving. I like that. Respect is, um, you know what we said was characteristic at the end, but it's respect that leads to serving. In marriage, submission is also another aspect of love. To submit is to give yourself up for someone. To submit to someone is to make room for the other and his or her ideas. To submit is to listen and to follow. To submit is to put someone else first. To submit is to do what someone else asks, even when it is hard. There's mutual submission in a marriage, and wives are to submit to and respect their husbands. According to verses 22 through 24, there is a sense in which a Christian wife is especially to shine in this grace. Something unique is going on. In fact, wives are to submit to their husbands, Paul tells us, as the church submits to Christ. So he's making a point here. I trust this isn't confusing because he gets this sort of mutual submission from verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, wives, I like his language. You are to shine in this grace, submitting to your husband as Christ loves the church. And then he gives examples of that. It's making room for someone. It's supporting Uh, his leadership, affirming his leadership. It's listening to, following um, these these kinds of things is what he says here. I do want to give a caveat to this, which I think is very important to always make when we talk about submission, because this text has been um, abused and has been used uh, wrongly at times uh, in some kind of rigid manner that the, the Bible doesn't mean at all. Uh, where wives are harmed. So I did did put in your outline. The call to submission is not absolute. Wives are not called to submit themselves to abuse. Uh, Jesus doesn't uh, physically beat the church. That that would not give a picture of what is being communicated. Uh, Wives also aren't to submit if their husbands are asking them to sin in some overt way, to lie, steal, uh, sin even sexually in some way. Um, There's not to submit. We, We all submit to the Lord. 
um, above every other authority. So I do want to say that, if, uh, this, lest anyone have the wrong idea, this is not some kind of tyrannical reign that the husband uh, takes advantage of his wife. No, lays down his life and loves her as Christ loves the church. Wives are to affirm their husband's lead as they represent the church's response to Christ. Paul doesn't offer ground-level examples, but highlights submission and respect as the appropriate disposition of a wife's heart. And so each couple has to think that through and talk about that. Um, examples are helpful. I'm going to share an example here in a second. Examples are helpful, but, uh, but what's most important is the attitude and the heart, because every marriage will sort of walk out the dance of sacrificial love and respect and submission. They'll walk out that dance a little bit differently. Um, there, there's more than one way. This isn't about who does the dishes or something like that or, or who balances the budget or home budget or whatever. Um, th that, that, that could tie into this if a couple agrees to it, but there has to be a sort of mutual sort of agreement on how we walk these things out. Uh, they may be unique in each marriage. So I guess I would ask you wives in the room today, um, what does it mean to your husband to receive your respect? So assuming his, his answer is godly, you know, um, what does it mean? Well, that's how you need to respect your husband in biblical honoring ways that are meaningful to him. Or uh, how can you affirm and embrace his leadership? That, that could look different in a different marriage, what that, what that means. How can you bring a critique to him in a way that helps him to grow? helps him to be sanctified in the marriage. Um, what, how, what does that look like in your marriage? Uh, my wife and I have talked about that. If we have a concern and I need to bring a uh, correction to one another, this goes both ways, husband and wife, vice versa. Um, what, what's the best way to, for me to present that that you will be most receptive of and will set you up to respond to the Lord? Because there are certain ways that aren't helpful, right? You, you know, here you did it again. That's not helpful. Uh, so there's certain ways that are helpful and certain aren't. So we, we've talked about that. Um, my wife really excels, I think, in these verses uh, in a number of ways. I just want to honor her in, in her absence, uh, honor her in the presence as well. Um, but one way that she shows respect to me uh, is that she frequently asks my input. Um, she's, not a, she's very capable She's not asking my input because she just has no ability. She's not asking my input because she's a doormat or something. She's very capable. Uh, she's very sharp. Uh, she's wonderful in, in so, so many ways. But she frequently asks my input. You know, here I've got this situation. What do you think about this? And you know what that's doing? That is, first of all, it's showing respect. My husband's not an idiot. Maybe he knows something, you know, okay? She's affirming. She's, she's, show, she's affirming my role in in. in her life, even in a voluntary way in our marriage. What, what do you think about this? She invites me in. It builds our companionship because now things are in her world or brought into our world. So now what was hers is now us because we're dialoguing about this together. Maybe I'm not meeting with the lady she's talking about. Maybe I don't have a situation with the friends she's talking about. Maybe I don't need to make a decision about the calendar that she's working on. But to bring me into that, Bring, makes it in us. So it facilitates our companionship. It facilitates the one, the one flesh relationship because what burdens her burdens me where she needs help. If I can help it, it draws us together. It's companionship. It's working together. And it also shows, even if it's voluntary in that way, it also shows a, uh, she's saying, Hey, I recognize your value in my life and in our relationship. And it goes both ways. I ask her input. But what I'm saying is there is this sense where she's orienting herself towards God's provided a means of grace in my life. And I want to honor that. And everything we've talked about marriage is facilitated in that, uh, in that interchange, asking for advice or input or help, even when it's not required, but it's just something she chooses to do. That would be an example, I think. Okay, let's talk about husbands a little bit. Empowered by the Spirit, husbands are called to orient themselves toward their lives, to their wives through sacrificial service. Husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 25, they're also called to love their wives as they love their own bodies, which they nourish and cherish as Christ does the church. I love the reality of the Bible. 
Guys, you care for your own bodies. You, you take it. You nourish your body like it's so important. You cherish your body. Every little ache and pain you're in touch with, why don't you pay attention to your wife in the same way? <laughs> you know, I, I love uh, the reality of the Bible. But he says that it's to, what, just as Christ nourishes the church, husbands nourish your wives. The word nourish, uh, as you do your own body, it means to develop, to nurture, to promote the growth of. So to love our wives as Christ loved the church, that means things like uh, practical service in ways that bless her and help her. Uh, loving her as Christ loved the church means putting her needs above my own. It, it means uh, listening and being sensitive to her. It means prioritizing her with my time and my attention. Uh, it means, you know, blessing her with, um, with gifts or with help or doing some special project that would be meaningful to her or in any number of things I could be sacrificing my own time energy attention effort uh, body I could be making all these kinds of sacrifices for her but the Bible talks about doing that in a way that nourishes her it builds her up it promotes her holiness so that's a category that maybe you haven't thought about guys how can I nourish my wife how, how can I serve her in a way that promotes her closeness to Jesus uh, and takes care of her, obviously, as well. Also, to cherish means to hold dear or to cultivate with care and affection or comfort. So we talked about companionship. I asked the question, uh, husbands, ask your wife, do you feel the warmth of my companionship? An, either, an even gutsier question is to say, do you feel like I cherish you generally in our marriage? Like not on our anniversary or at the marriage retreat, but generally in our marriage, do you feel cherished? That, that's, a, that's a gutsy question, but uh, hopefully you'll get an answer that's encouraging and helpful and, and you'll find out some areas to, to grow and to cultivate affection and care for her. Ray Ortland writes, when a woman is married to a lovingly Christ-like man who cherishes her, she feels warmth in her heart at being valued by her husband and held dear above all others, second only to Christ himself. Her husband delights in her and prizes her, and she feels it deep inside with a heartwarming glow. That is cherishing one's, one's wife. I know with my own wife, we've had this conversation at various times. Maybe we didn't talk about this specific verse, but the idea that it means so much for my wife, for Ginger, when she feels like, I, like I'm valuing her with my attention, my thoughts. I'm thinking of her. I'm cherishing her above all the responsibilities. I, the, I, I'm often consumed with the thorns and thistles of, of the garden that I work in. Um, and so when I'm putting all that aside and say, no, I'm, I want to cherish you and I'm thinking of you. I'm not just consumed with work or something like that. that that's very, very meaningful for her to feel, feel that. And that's my calling because that represents Christ and the church that cares for her that points to the reality uh, that is to come for eternity bottom line is this um, I didn't go real deep in all the roles here and stuff like that other than to touch the surface of it but the bottom line is that we're called to die to ourselves and live for Christ that's what it is to be a Christian and marriage provides many opportunities to walk out the death, death to self alive to Christ reality. You know, I love this verse. It's not about marriage, but boy, does it, uh, does it apply. Second Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So filled with the Spirit, and then coming into marriage with this idea, you know, not who's got it harder, the husband or the wife, or, you know, wow, you know, not just that, but rather, I'm dead, and I'm called to live for Jesus and take up my cross daily. What does that look like in my marriage? Well, it looks a lot of ways, but a profound orientation of heart is for her to say, for the wife to say, I'm dead to myself, and I joyfully affirm your leadership in this marriage. And for the husband to say, I'm dead to myself and living for Jesus, and that means I need to sacrifice myself in every way conceivable for your good because that glorifies Jesus. So if we both come into the marriage saying, I'm dying to myself, I'm taking a cross, here's the way we can live that out to represent Christ in his church, which is pleasing to him, a witness to the world, serves one another, and cultivates our companionship. Here's a quote from that Keller book that I, I think is, is helpful. 
He says, as we shall see, each of these exhortations has a distinct, distinct shape. They're not identical tasks that we just saw about husband and wife. Each partner is called to sacrifice for the other in far-reaching ways. Whether we are husband or wife, we're not to live for ourselves, but for the other. And that is the hardest yet single most important function of being a husband or wife in marriage. If two spouses say to each other, I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main problem in the marriage, you have the prospect of a truly great marriage. If I can be more concerned about my orientation of my heart, my perspective to love and sacrifice for her and realize the greatest problem in our marriage is when I'm not doing that. And when Ginger can do just the opposite and say but the, that for her, the, you know, that she died of self, uh, of, uh, to self and that the, the greatest problem in the marriage is that she is not oriented to me in the way that God calls her to, to affirm my leadership and to respect me, that that's the greatest problem. If we're both realizing that we're the greatest problem, then we have access to the grace of God where there is forgiveness. Remember, all this is under the power of the Spirit, and the Spirit fills us and works in us to help us with our marriage. Okay, a couple ideas. I think we're going to get out early perhaps this, this session from what we have um, before, so we'll have a little time to talk. Uh, we'll have plenty of time to talk, I think. Um, marriage and the restoration of all things. So under redemption, we just talked about the promise, the fulfillment of it, that there's a new power, there's a new purpose, and there is this new perspective or orientation that we have uh, in our marriages of self-sacrifice by the grace of God, by the power of God helping us. So marriage and the restoration of all things. So this, this points to consummation. Marriage calls us to yearn for the renewal of all things. It points us to the day when all will be right and we will experience life as it was meant to be lived in the new heaven and the new earth. Our deepest longings will be fulfilled and then, and then some. I'm going to say it again. Our deepest longings will be fulfilled and then some. When God unites all things in Christ, that's what Ephesians 1.10 says, that, that things in heaven and things on earth will be united in Christ. And that day, the shadow of our marriages will be no more, making way for the reality of Christ's marriage to his bride. I read this in an earlier section, I think in the first night. I read this in, uh, in the first message on glory, the glory of marriage, but I want to reread it because it's very good. The first cosmos was created as the home of a young couple named Adam and Eve. The new cosmos will be created as the eternal home of the son and his bride. It is not as though marriage is just one theme among others in the Bible. Instead, marriage is the wraparound concept for the entire Bible, within which other themes find their places. And if the Bible is telling a story of married romance, no wonder the demonic powers would forbid marriage. Every happy marriage whispers their doom and proclaims Christ's triumph. Every marriage in Christ Every growing marriage, really in some ways it doesn't matter where you are today, what direction are you going? Every marriage can grow, can, we're in the era of can. Empowered by the Spirit, we have the Word, the Spirit, and His people to help us. As we are growing in sanctification, every growing marriage shouts the victory of Christ, proclaims the glory of God who has turned us around. Yes, we live in the is, the fallen world, but we also live in the can, and we are living in the kingdom has come, and it is, it is, it is working in us <coughs> and changing us working in us and changing us. I think these are lofty ideas. We started with the glory of marriage and all of that it's meant to be in the garden before the fall. Then we all took a, you know, a blow to the midsection reading about the fall and how challenging and difficult it is. But with always hope there that God promised to crush Satan's head. And now we've talked some about redemption, that Jesus comes and dies and is raised, gives his spirit to us, which gives us a new power, gives us the power. He is sanctifying us, growing us in holiness so that the patterns of sin in our life are dying over time and the power of new life is, is, is taking on more influence in our hearts. The fruit of the Spirit is being born little by little so that maybe it started out with just a, a twig, you know, a, little spring, a sprig is the word, a little a sprig of life and then it grew into a branch and now maybe you got a tree and you get older and maybe you got an orchard of fruit that God has born in your life and your marriage. Such a beautiful 
hopeful picture that we have. But these callings, these lofty callings, um, without a vision of grace that can be daunting. So we want an appropriate vision of grace. And I think I'm going to wrap up with this idea. The benefit of the four chapters of seeing creation, fall, redemption, and consummation is it's really helpful to place ourselves in that story. And it helps us to not settle, but to understand where we live and to be realistic about where we live. I want to call a very high goal. I want to take the Bible's goal and say, these are our goals. But I also want to say there's really a, needs to be much room for grace because none of us are living there. None of us are living there. We battle the is every, every day. And I want to close with an idea called making peace with the proximate. This is a new idea to me, this, at least this language of proximate, which means close, means near. Um, making peace with the, with pro, with the proximate. Um, while we wait for the return of Christ, we live in this tension of the already but not yet of Christ's kingdom. You may have heard that language. What it means is Jesus comes and brings the kingdom of God. So we can say the kingdom is here. It's present here. It's present in our marriage. It's present in our life. Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit as the down payment of the promise that he will return and usher in the new heaven and new earth. So we, ha we, we have the kingdom of God. It is here already, but it's not yet in its fullness. That's a day coming. So we live in the tension of is and can. We live in that center. The, the creation and the consummation are the bookends, and we live in this center, which is a wrestling. It's the wrestling between the fallen world and redemption, which is changing us. I wrote in your notes, ours is the time between what ought to be and what will be. And so we walk out our marriages weighed down by is as we grow to live more and more in the can of the new covenant. Our present experience of the Spirit is a down payment, but it's not the fullness of our coming inheritance. So what should we expect of our marriages in these in-between times? One thing that happens is I think sometimes marriage companionship is sabotaged by mix-matched uh, mix um, expectations. Um, so we want to have the same expectation about the goal of companionship and one flesh relationship and new power and new orientation towards husband and wife in these, uh, the new ways we love and walk out our life together pointing to Christ. But we also need to realize we're not in heaven yet and we're in the in-between time. So author, there's an author named Steve Garber and he speaks of making peace with the proximate. That is being content in the near, uh, in what is near or what is close, recognizing that it's not perfect. He says, we don't have everything yet, but we have something. So we must learn to be happy with the proximate. Today, all our marriages know suffering and disappointment and heartache and sin because we're not in heaven yet. So we have to have a realistic vision of how we live. We're, we're to have grace towards one another is a way of saying that. He writes in a book called Visions of Vocation. He says, when we find that all we hope for does not happen, that sometimes the worst thing happens, what then? When we discover that our best hopes have been disappointed, what then? Some choose versions of stoicism or cynicism, deciding for very good reason, I've had enough. But then with surprising grace, some choose to keep at it, hard as it is, always and everywhere, they do so understanding that they're making peace with the proximate, with something, even if it's not everything, with something rather than nothing. They choose proximate happiness, knowing that a good marriage to a good person is a good gift. There is no perfect marriage. That's Christ in the church. You are not married to a perfect person. That's Jesus. And your marriage is not a perfect gift, but it's a treasure and a joy and a good gift. I think this is just such a, such a helpful way to think about living between the times. It's the reality. In the book that I just read from, uh, I didn't type this quotation, so I had to bring the whole book with me, but Visions of Vocation is what it's called. He tells this little story that I think, I, I hope this image sticks with you, and it's, it's pretty. It's about a painting. I haven't seen the painting, but he says this. He says, on our bedroom wall is a reproduction of the painting by Edward Burne Jones, a British painter over a century ago. Artfully capturing the yearnings of love, it portrays a man and a woman holding on to each other amidst the ruins of a civilization. So every, 
evidently behind them in the background is some kind of destruction and in the foreground is this couple hugging one another and the name of the painting is love among the ruins he says it's wisdom about the human heart speaks into our life as husband and wife reminding us that our best hopes will be love among the ruins of our own frailties in a move 20 years ago this painting was the one item broken a whole house moved and when the day was done, one painting was cracked. My initial response was to restore it. But over time, I began to make peace with its brokenness, with this picture of proximate happiness in our marriage. Years later, it still speaks in silence, and we continue to listen. It's a beautiful picture, love among the ruins. We're not in heaven yet. We're not, it's not the consummation. Uh, our, the best marriage struggles. The best marriage has regrets. The best marriage has weakness and sin and ignorance and, and all kinds of things to deal with in a fallen world. This is how we started, if you'll remember, the entire conference. We started the entire conference by Daniel reading us a quote, which I got from him. This was Martin Luther. This is making peace with the proximate, which doesn't lower the goal, doesn't excuse sin, but just recognizes what it means to live in the already and not let yet. Luther wrote, Martin Luther wrote, this life is not righteous, but growth and righteousness. It's not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We're not yet what we shall be, but we're growing towards it. The process is not yet finished, but it's going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. Your marriage may not gleam in, well, it doesn't gleam in glory. One day, Christ and the church, what our marriages point to, we will gleam in glory as his bride in that day. In the meantime, I didn't want to build up this great thing and in the conclusion, let all the air out and say, it doesn't matter. Not saying that. But I'm saying we have to live in reality and say, it's not being, but it's becoming. We haven't arrived, but we're on the road. It's love in the ruins. When even the couple hanging on to each other in a picture that portrays marriage in a fallen world, the picture itself is broken and still hanging on the wall to remind us God is gracious and a good God giving us a good wife by his grace, a good husband by his grace is a good gift to press on and give thanks and be grateful and tell ourselves regularly, this ain't the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, we're on the way. We're on the way. One last quote and we're done. This is from the Van Dixhorn book. He says, but with the Holy Spirit's help, let us never forget that each of us is marrying a sinner and not a savior. The reality of the gospel will always be the best model for marriage but your marriage may often fail to be a good model of the gospel. You'll face moments and perhaps seasons when affection and respect will not be what they should be, when saints are not loving and sinners need more grace. So let us keep before us the love that Christ has for his church. He did not pursue those who were always warm and kind. Rather, he followed after those who turned their backs on him. He did not come for those who were already righteous, but to those who dared to insult him or ignore him. In short, Christ came to save sinners, and that's what we are, even in marriage, perhaps especially in marriage. He lost his life so that we could find forgiveness. Of course, we are speaking to all of us here because we're speaking of Christ and his church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glory of the story of Scripture, that you created life as it ought to be, that because of the fall which we took part in and which we affirm, life is broken, our marriages, oh, no brokenness and cracks. We read in this conference that every day is a trip to the orchard where the snake is waiting, challenged to put ourselves on the throne stand against your purposes to have things our way. And yet you sent Jesus for us in our rebellion, that even when we weren't looking for you, you came looking for us, showering us with grace and mercy. 
opening our eyes to the beauty of the cross and the resurrection to see you as Lord, giving us faith as a gift, granting us a new birth and giving us your Holy Spirit so that we are now new people, the people of God who already have the Spirit, though not yet in fullness. Lord, we thank you that while we live between the times as believers, we don't just live in the is, but we also live in what can be, for you are making all things new, and that includes us. We thank you for what you've done in our spouse and in ourselves. We love better than we did one year ago, five years ago, 40 years ago. We love better. There's, there's more peace and joy. You're changing us little by little, and we thank you for that. And we pray that you would help us to be content with the proximate. We're not in heaven yet. This is a picture. And Lord, even though it's good, it's only near. It's only a representation. It's not the ultimate. Lord, help us live with this reality that we haven't arrived, but we're on the road. And may that give us a picture of grace that wants us, causes us to run the race all the more with, with fresh power and fresh vision and fresh hope may we not grow cynical lord may we not grow hopeless but way we have even may we be compelled to love amidst the ruins of a broken world we pray that for each of our marriages i pray for each of these couples that as we have a moment of conversation now that the spirit would fill each of them and grant them grace to speak transparently to in their hearts emotionally be naked and not ashamed before one another we pray in this conversation. And for the trip home, may there be much uh, joy and conversation uh, along the way that we could uh, take the things that you've taught us from your word and uh, sort of cherish them in our hearts and try to grow. And we pray, Lord, for the day that you return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We thank you for all that you've done, but we long for the ultimate, the return for the consummation and the great marriage supper of the Lamb. Thank you for this time, and we just ask Give us grace to be hearers and doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Help us, we need you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.